Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And as you might be able to hear, there's also a screaming child in the background. <laughs> so we welcome them to their first Mumbrella cast. Do we, we are. Though? We welcome them. <laughs> well, there's nothing we can do about it. So let's embrace it, Brittany. We are coming to you from the Amora Jamison Hotel in Sydney from Mumbrella's Health Marketing Summit. So apologies in advance for any background noise as we bring you another podcast from the road. Coming up later in a more quiet setting, Hannah and Brittany chat with The Guardian Australia's Dan Stinton and Lenore Taylor about The Guardian's progressive mindset. A progressive mindset, which is what we've been talking about in market, isn't necessarily a left or right wing take on things. Creating an impact in Australia. I think we're well on the way to achieving what I want us to achieve, which is to be an absolute major player with influence in the Australian media market. And whether The Guardian would ever sign a content partnership with Facebook. Anybody we partner with has to be on the, with the proviso of complete and total editorial independence. But first, this week's topics... Kellogg's finally finds a media agency. Alan Jones takes aim at Jacinda Ardern and Angus advertisers, or does he? Reporting season sees Seven bring in a new CEO and other companies feel the pinch of a tightening market. First up, after a long and rather public pitch process, which saw the likes of Initiative Global CEO Matt Baxter weigh in, FMCG brand Kellogg's has finally found its media agency in Publicis Media's Zenith. That ended a 20-plus year relationship with Group M's Mindshare. Brittany, big brands do move their media accounts quite often. Why is it that this account received so much attention for running a pitch? It's pretty widely known that Kellogg's was uh, demanding 120-day payment terms. So rather than that being something that was up for negotiation or something that agencies could talk about with Kellogg's, it was this is the payment terms that we're going to be operating under. If you don't like them, you don't qualify to pitch. So there were agencies that decided not to pitch. Uh, Mindshare didn't pitch again for the account. Uh, Initiative didn't pitch, PhD didn't pitch and it kind of came to a head when Matt Baxter spoke at Mumbrella 360 and he called out those payment terms, didn't explicitly mention Kellogg's but said that there is a CPG client in the market demanding these payment terms, we didn't pitch, PhD didn't pitch and other agencies shouldn't pitch either. Um, everyone knew it was Kellogg's. If they didn't, they soon did know, and that's why the pitch has had all of this controversy surrounding it. Now, Tamara Howe, who's Kellogg's Director of Marketing and Corporate Affairs for Australia and New Zealand, has come out and said when speaking to you in your Ditch the Pitch feature series that Baxter's statements and some of the surrounding industry scuttlebutt didn't reflect the Kellogg's process or the value it places on its agency partners. So she said, I can't speak for other clients. However, Matt's comments do not reflect the process at Kellogg ANZ. We get many requests to work on our business. So I think a pitch process provides a structured, fair opportunity. And I think she also said something to you, Brittany, about clients needing to lean in, which copped some criticism from our commenters. She did. So she said that basically... Kellogg's has to pitch for, for other business and so therefore agencies also need to lean in to win business and that means engaging in the pitch process. Um, and yeah, she was very clear that she doesn't think that Kellogg's has a pitch problem um, and that in fact it's fair, it's, it's well structured that they take it seriously. Um, the exact quote I've just got up here is, pitching in business is also commonplace. For example, we pitch for contracts against competing food manufacturers or we pitch to retailers to gain distribution in store. Businesses have to lean in to win business. 
So something that should be quite a positive for Zenith, the Kellogg's account is quite big. You know, it's worth $11-plus million, I think, according to Nielsen's spend figures. It's been marred by quite a negative reaction because people are making all sorts of assumptions about what Zenith might have promised Kellogg's and the flexibilities they've given them with the contract in terms of payment terms and all sorts of things like that. Zenith CEO Nikki Scriven, though, issued a statement that was full of praise for the Kellogg's marketing and procurement teams, and they're delighted to start working with Kellogg's and, you know, taking over from Group M's Mindshare, which now looking at the figures actually had the Kellogg's account for 35 years. But do you think the industry's going to believe that? Because certainly the sentiment in the comment thread and the sentiment from people not directly involved in this is that it is a bad look for Zenith, no matter what either client or uh, agency say. Yeah, totally. So I spoke to a few media agency bosses after Matt Baxter's original comments and the consensus was pretty clear that 120-day payment terms are unreasonable. Every boss that I spoke to said that in terms of cash flow and in terms of, you know, the pressure that that puts on agencies, that's not a fair relationship. And so entering into a partnership with a client who's setting those standards from the get-go is not going to be one that's, you know, positive. Um, I think that, yeah, it's, it's interesting that agencies are usually so quick to talk about new client wins and that's often a really great news day for them. Uh, I don't think that that was the case for Zenith. The industry's kind of already made up its mind about what it thinks of the Kellogg's pitch and the fact that Zenith has won means that that perception transfers to them as well. Speaking of negative perceptions, up next, Alan Jones and advertisers part ways. So Macquarie Media Breakfast host Alan Jones was in hot water again last week for his comments about New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. On his 2GB Breakfast show, Jones said Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison should shove a sock down the throat of Ardern in response to her comments on climate change. He then somewhat backtracked on that, saying that he meant to say she should put a sock in it, which is a more common and less aggressive phrase, and contended that he was being willfully misrepresented by those in the media and outrage brigade who were taking him out of context. Following that, he apologised on fellow 2GB host Ben Fordham's show, but further audio showed that he'd said other inflammatory things, including that Scott Morrison should get tough here and deal out a few backhanders. So, of course, with someone like Alan Jones, it didn't stop there. There was then a Twitter campaign and advertisers began to vow that they would abandon 2GB, leading to employer Macquarie Media giving Jones a public warning, saying he would be dropped if he made similar comments again. Brittany, you appeared on 7 News this week to talk about this, making you our official Alan Jones correspondent, it would seem. My favourite title yet. What advertisers have voiced their support for the exodus? And and I also sort of want to touch on, because there is a perception in the industry that when something like this happens, sometimes brands that don't even advertise on a program or barely spend any money... Yeah say, oh, we're we're pulling our advertising, we're pulling our advertising to get that bump. So are these brands that actually were advertising who were pulling their money? Are there real financial implications here? Yeah. So first, your first question, there's 31 advertisers who have pulled out so far. That's the latest figure I've seen. Um, The big names include Anytime Fitness, Chemist Warehouse, Bunnings, Koala, Accor Hotels, Volkswagen, Hyundai. In terms of what you were saying about whether or not that translates into a huge financial hit or whether or not it's just companies being like, this is a great PR opportunity for us. We can say that we don't think Alan Jones is a great person and everyone on Twitter will clap and applaud at how much of a progressive company we are. There have been some who have 
confirmed their stance not to advertise rather than actually actively pulled advertising. So there was some drama around Mercedes-Benz and they were copying some flack for advertising. They came out and said, actually, we haven't directly advertised on his show for years. However, some of our dealers do. So they're entering into discussions with dealerships about whether or not they should be representing the Mercedes-Benz brand on Alan Jones's show. But you're right, it it's it's an advertisement in itself to decide not to advertise, right? It's great PR for these brands. The conversation has been happening since last Friday, almost a week. It's still ongoing. There's still brands pulling out every day. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many of them stay off of 2GB's airways for sure. And look, the next radio ratings are out on Tuesday, the 27th of August, which as we record is a few days away. And unless there's some huge shift in the market that people don't see coming, Alan Jones will still be on the top of Sydney Breakfast Radio. He's far ahead of the closest competitor being FM's Kyle and Jackie O on KISS 106.5. So... Can brands justify staying away from his show? So on Wednesday evening, we were at an IAA event which had a panel of speakers and they were speaking about diversity in in media and in advertising, but I did ask them the question about Alan Jones and some of the panellists were saying, look, the commercial reality is sometimes you do end up having to go back and sometimes if that's where the ears or the eyes or the consumers are, it gets to a point where, okay, you've tried to send a message to the media company or the shock jock by pulling out, but you do have to go back. What do you think about that? I think it depends what kind of brand you are, right? If you're a brand that is genuinely meaning it when you say, we don't support misogyny, we don't support racism, we don't support Alan Jones's comments, um, whatever they may be in in terms of being discriminatory in those ways, then I think you absolutely need to stand by that if you're to have any shred of credibility. You can't come back in two weeks or a month or a couple of months and expect that this consumer base that you've built up um, are going to believe you when you say, oh, we meant it at the time, but, you know, things change and, you know, our advertising audience does listen to him. If you're a brand that doesn't really mean that and you are on the wave for the PR and publicity that it brings you, then I think for sure they'll they'll creep back. Um, it'll be interesting to see which ones do. But I think that, I mean, the people who listen to Alan Jones's show are not only listening to Alan Jones's show. It's it's one form of media that they're consuming. They're floating around elsewhere you'll have to think smarter about how to find them, sure. It'll be harder work, sure. It would be way easier to be like, he has a huge share in the breakfast market. It's way easier to place our dollars with him. Whether or not you do that or not, I think, speaks more to whether or not you mean your brand purpose and your you know, brand values and all of those sort of buzzwords that get thrown around. Um, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And at this IAA panel last night, Mark Fennell, who's from SBS's The Feed, mm-hmm. did sort of talk about how brands do get this publicity bump from taking a stand and from pulling out, but they rarely then get the backlash from sneakily returning because by then the outrage has moved on, something else has happened and there's nobody really holding them to account. And he was contending, well, look, if you're going to get the good, and he's saying, you know, you kind of do deserve your kudos, but if you're going to get that kudos for pulling out, then equally you need to be held accountable for when you go back. You can't have one without the other. So either Mm. get no kudos and no criticism, but if you're going to get that whole, hey, we're taking a stand, we don't like it, and then you return two weeks later when people are angry at Kyle Sanderlands instead Mm. and the heat's gone, well, then somebody needs to sort of remind those brands, well, hold on, two weeks ago you were totally against this guy. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is it's much harder to track who's sneaking back versus who's pulling out because when people are pulling out, it's great publicity for them. It's all over their social media. So it's super easy to say that this brand on this day at this time have committed to pulling advertising because they're crowing about it. To then track 
who's creeping back in means listening to Alan Jones, I guess, every day until you hear an ad um, because brands aren't going to say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're back and hope that that's okay with everybody. So I think it's not just that the news cycle moves on and that the outrage cycle moves on to someone and something else, but also brands aren't going to own up to going back. So it's it's a lot more work involved to track it, but absolutely that they need to be held accountable if, if that's what happens. And the panel pretty much unanimously agreed that – Alan Jones's comments were wrong and that brands were correct to be taking a stand and they all sort of agreed that it did feel like this time for whatever reason the controversy was sticking around for longer and the implications might be a bit more real but Jartha Taylor who was on the panel and he's KPMG's marketing director did say that the he was a bit sort of softer on the matter than Mark Fennell and did sort Mm -hmm. of say it's a commercial reality that you have to go back. So he said, I think you can pull out and at some stage you do flip in again because it's a commercial reality. It's a high-rating breakfast radio show. If that's the target you need to reach, at some point you're like, okay, I've sent the signal, I've pulled the money out because I don't want you to behave like this. He said you'll have a meeting with Macquarie Media and have that conversation with them and at some point you have to go back in. So his point of view was more, well, even if you go back, at least you've sent a signal, whereas Mark Fennell was much stronger, like, no, no, the only way you can send a signal is if you actually stick to it. The other point of view that I think comes into this debate, um, particularly from I spoke to Sky News' commercial director, Catherine Adams, at the beginning of this year, and MCN CEO Mark Frayne, and both of them said, how much power do you give to the Twitter mob? So Sleeping Giants, who is one of the um, Twitter brigades behind a lot of the outrage, and they, for a lot of this year, have been campaigning against advertisement on Sky News, particularly Sky News After Dark, which obviously Alan Jones is a part of. Um, and Catherine was pretty open in saying that if we are going to start kowtowing to every single group of people that get upset on social media... Is it fair for one small group of people to have such a large result on a company? And I do think in this case, Jones's comments were pretty outrageous. Um, and I can see why the backlash has been as strict as it has been. But I suspect we're going to see a bit more from that side as well, where people are saying, okay, well, this is cool. You know, a couple of people on Twitter getting upset can influence advertisers, but should it be enough to completely hit a company yeah i guess the difference with this one is uh and it was a sentiment of the panel last night as well that it does feel like this one isn't going away as quickly you know you've even had prime minister scott morrison hitting out at it former prime minister malcolm turnbull hitting out at it jacinda ardern so far has mostly stayed away from it just issuing a sort of tongue-in-cheek let us low cup sledge but I guess we'll see when the radio ratings come out on Tuesday and we'll try and keep an eye on it for everyone about whether or not those advertisers sneak back because that was the challenge that Mark Fennell issued issued to me. (laughs) It seems to have become somehow my job for asking the question at the panel. So I guess we'll keep everybody updated. I can hand the Alan Jones correspondent (laughs) button across to you. My question is, before we leave, do you reckon Macquarie Media will actually dump him? So they've said one more incident like this and he's gone. What do you reckon? And, I mean, we can guarantee there'll be one more incident like this. I mean, I think it's not if it's when. No. Everybody has different views on this and whether or not uh, brands should pull their advertising, whether they should be allowed to sneak back without – question whether Alan Jones has a place on a mainstream media platform. Views on that are split. Views are not split on whether or not he's going to do yeah. this again. Even even his fans are like, yeah, because his fans <laughs> listen to him for this kind of thing. So they're like, That's yeah, what they want. It'll, yeah, it'll happen again. So I yeah. think we all agree it will happen again for sure. I look forward to seeing what get out of jail free card yes. they use to not get rid of him. Alan Jones recently signed a new two-year deal with 2GB. Uh, As we know, Nine Network is trying to buy the remaining stake in Macquarie Media at the moment and Macquarie Media is not going to want to sell that asset to Nine without its biggest star, Mm. which is its big, big, big draw card. So 
we'll see because as Brittany says, it's not if but when. My perspective is that I wish they would fire him. I wish that Alan Jones was not on the air anymore and didn't have a platform. Um, and I 100% think that advertisers should pull out. However, Macquarie has kind of backed themselves into an interesting corner issuing the statement they have. I do not think they're going to fire him. And I wrote an opinion piece about this last Friday before sort of the onslaught of advertising pullouts and before the statement came out. And and the headline of that was, we don't care because I genuinely don't think Macquarie do. And I think that they will continue to not. And that was chief Alan Jones correspondent, (laughs) Brittany Rigby. Next up, the reporting season wraps up, including a new CEO for Seven. As happens each year, reporting season has brought with it some big announcements, including Tim Warner leaving Seven after six years at the helm and two decades with the company. He's been replaced in the CEO position by ex-10 and APN outdoor boss James Warburton, effective immediately. Viv, that meant James was on the job for just five days when you spoke to him straight after some fairly poor results from Seven. Did he sound like he was enjoying the new job? Look, James, when I've spoken to him previously, has been a very upbeat, very media savvy guy. Uh, So when he was a CEO of APN Outdoor and going through the process of bidding for Adshell, which was ultimately bought by APN Outdoor's rival O-Media, and then also going through the process of JC Decoe purchasing APN Outdoor, James was very, very happy to chat Now, as you say, he'd been in the role for five days when Seven announced a loss of over $400 million and large debt levels and quite a few problematic things in there. And then he had to front up to the media for results that he really wasn't responsible for, but now has to be held accountable for. So it it was an odd dynamic. I think James did a good job with the hand he'd been dealt but the impression I got from my chat with him was that it's a long and tough road ahead I did ask he had a few lines that he wanted to trot out a lot of times and he did it to various media outlets which is nothing's on the table and nothing's off the table not quite sure what that means nothing is the answer (laughs) and he was also very keen to spruik the impending benefits of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that Seven has but when I pushed him a bit further and said yep we all know 2020 is going to be a good ratings year for Seven because you've got the Olympics but what does Seven look like in 2025 and that's when he pulled the I've only been here five days card (laughs) I can't answer that and went back to the nothing's on the table nothing's off the table so I feel for him it's it's been five days and he had to jump on a fairly confronting call with investors as well who were very keen to know what he was going to do to transform the company a lot of his response to that was they're going to look at mergers and acquisitions but even the investors were quite forthright with James saying, but how? Yeah, They've got a huge debt level. So they're saying, well, how are you going to purchase something? Uh, and if they're going to be the one that's acquired, the investors were asking, well, how are you going to be in a position to be acquired and get a good price when you've got such high debt levels? So James said when he left APN Outdoor, he wanted to go to a role that would enable him to be entrepreneurial and transformative. So we'll see if he can do that with Seven because it definitely needs it at the moment. And you probably didn't feel much better today when Nine posted their results, uh, which saw them doing fairly well. It was a completely different job for Hugh Marks, who took the investor call today and was basically slapped on the back for doing a great job. Uh, Stan's turned its first profits. Everything seems to be ticking along quite nicely over there um Hugh wouldn't I spoke to Hugh after the after the investor call and he wouldn't be drawn into 
any slaying of seven, unfortunately. Oh, disappointing. <laughs> that was your explicit instruction. I know. Get Hugh Marks to sledge seven. <laughs> he also wouldn't comment on whether or not he will be heading out the door anytime soon. He just mm. laughed at me and said I wasn't going to get that scoop today. Um, so, yeah, I must – I mean, James is probably just hoping all this is going to be over real quick and then he can get to the next part of the job. Well, it's an interesting dynamic between seven and – nine that you mentioned there because part of what James Warburton, Seven's new CEO, said to me on the phone was he needs to turn Seven's narrative around. Mm. It is seen as quite a legacy television business with some old war horses in the in its TV programming and he said it's skewing too old in some of its viewing numbers so they need to sort of start targeting the demos and those key advertising demographics of 16 to 39, 18 to 49 and 25 to 54s a bit more. But I said to him, how are you going to do that? How are you going to make that sevens narrative when arguably that's already nine's narrative? Nine did that. Nine moved away from positioning itself as a television company, particularly with the acquisition of the Fairfax assets and its stand venture. And it it always talks about being an entertainment company, being a content company. It always talks about the demos in its television ratings, not total people. It always talks about different platforms, not just the overnight ratings on the television screen. So the narrative that James wants to project is a good one, but I did say to him, I I think Nine already has that one wrapped up. I think they already took, took that narrative. So what are you going to do? Now, James is confident he can do it and he said part of that is going to be getting back to heartland australia in terms of what they want to view you've just pulled a face there i don't know what it means either (laughs) but we're not james warburton so it's not our problem heartland australia is neither on the table (laughs) nor off the table (laughs) correct and he also said they just need to get more innovative with their content which i think everybody can agree on seven has some great rating shows in terms of seven news the chase australia home and away but it's tentpole programs and it's 7.30 p.m. Sunday to Tuesday is really quite a problem for Seven and it just hasn't been able to launch good programs lately. James knows that and he reckons he's the guy to fix it. And he had a bit of a jab at the old CEO, Tim Warner, when I said to him and questioned him, you know, you said you wanted to work for an innovative and entrepreneurial company when you left APN Outdoor. Is Seven an innovative transformative forward-thinking company and his response was it is now love that juicy so yeah strong branding yeah strong branding from james James. i love the confidence and so yeah look it is now fighting words from james warburton ceo of seven let's have a look at seven in 2025 Coming up, Brittany and Hannah speak with The Guardian Australia's Managing Director, Dan Stinton, and its editor, Lenore Taylor. I'm Hannah Blackiston here with Mumbrella. I'm joined by Brittany Rigby. Hello. And we're also joined by Dan Stinton and Lenore Taylor from The Guardian. Hello. Hello. <laughs> So kind of to get started, the reason for this chat today is because you have just embarked on a very large newsroom expansion. Um, You've brought in a whole heap of new roles, a whole heap of new talent. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I sure do. It's um, it's very exciting. We've got three sort of strands to the expansion. The first one is our core journalism. So we've hired an investigations editor, a senior business reporter, a new senior reporter who's got sort of speciality in data and privacy type issues. The second strand is uh, telling our stories in a different way. So we've hired an audio team and we're going to be producing a narrative news podcast. And the third strand is to try and sort of broaden our coverage out. So we're going to be starting a lifestyle section it will be Guardian version of lifestyle. So we will do travel and fashion and food and all the lifestyle sort of areas, but in a Guardian meaningful life, well-lived, you know, respecting that our readers are intelligent people who think about these things in a broad kind of way. Uh, And also we're going to be doing more culture as well. So we're sort of going deeper and broader and we're doing more of the core stuff that we're really known for. 
Mm. Probably worth mentioning as well as that, we've also increased the size of our commercial sales team, both in Sydney and Melbourne, um, just so we can better service the market effectively. And the expansion, that was um, kind of off the back of the success of the the, um, revenue model that you guys use, which is the mixed revenue model. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that and what, what success for that looks like in terms of being able to then expand the newsroom? Sure. Well, well, there's there's three, well, there's two main revenue streams for us in, in advertising and reader revenue, which I'll come back to. And then there's a third, which is small but growing and, and we're quite excited about, which is philanthropy. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll start with the advertising side. I mean, I think um, despite the challenges of, of competing with the platforms and, and the like, uh, we are still growing our advertising. It's more than half of our revenue uh, and we still see a lot of growth to come. Um, I mean, we reach around 5 million people uh, a month now, but I don't feel that we're quite uh, achieving our advertising revenue that's deserved of that audience. So we we still see some tremendous growth there. In addition to that, we've got the reader revenue model, which we launched a few years ago. It's had tremendous growth. It's been tremendously successful. I think most people would know the model, but just in case, it, it's a u- relatively unique model whereby we effectively ask readers um, to make voluntary financial contributions to our journalism if they like what we're doing. And because of the kind of journalism that we do, that tends to attract um, a lot of support from our readers. Uh, and then the third model, as I mentioned, is the philanthropy model. Uh, we launched this about 18 months ago in partnership with Melbourne University. We created the Guardian Civic Journalism Trust, uh, and that's enabled us to do the kind of journalism projects that um, we perhaps uh, have always wanted to do but haven't quite been able to fund on our own. So, for example, we have an Indigenous Affairs Round, which is funded by the Balnaves Foundation, uh, Government Accountability and Transparency from Susan McKinnon, and we've just announced a new partnership with the Judith Nielsen Institute um, to increase our reporting in the Pacific Yeah, and I mean, from an editorial point of view, that revenue model means that we're really incentivised to do the very best journalism that we can do, the kind of journalism we really want to do. So it's it's almost like the opposite of clickbait. You know, we get money from our readers by completely inspiring them with our journalism and we get um, backing from philanthropists to do the kind of journalism that we dream of doing. So yet we want reach because we still we still have revenue from advertising, but that helps us to get what we want, which is meaningful reach. And um, in terms of where the team is sitting now after the most recent expansion, is that where it's going to stay for a while? Are you still recruiting for more roles? We are recruiting for a couple more roles now, and then we've got a whole strategic plan that we spend a whole a lot of time doing, <laughs> and it does ha- it does envisage further expansion, but I think we just want to solidify what we've done so far we've got a few more roles to go let's we'll sort of stop and breathe for a bit and then we'll move on to the next phase it is worth mentioning though we do see more growth coming in the medium term so so next calendar year and the year after we do expect to increase the size of our team further um despite the fact that we've also just increased it really substantially in the last sort of three or four months Mm. in terms of the team you've got and then the team you'll be looking to get in the medium term as you mentioned dan the guardian is known to be progressive do people who work for The Guardian have to be politically progressive? Uh, no, although I think it helps if uh, you have a similar view to perhaps the line that we take with with our journalism. Uh, but no, certainly on the commercial side of the business, we have a variety of views. Um, but I think it is also worth mentioning that a progressive mindset, which is what we've been talking about in market, isn't necessarily a left or right wing take on things. Um, we commissioned a whole bunch of research recently, which we went to market with, which showed that there were a large number of people which self-identify as being progressive that are liberal voters, perhaps more with small L liberal values, but nonetheless liberal voters as well as Labor and the Greens. Now, I don't think there was too many um, One Nation or uh, Clive Palmer voters, but nonetheless, there's it's a broad spectrum of, of people that identify as progressive and certainly on the commercial side, we have a diverse view. And editorially, we don't align with any political party, mm. absolutely not. Mm. Um, I think being progressive means... Um, thinking that the world can be better than it is now rather than wanting it to stay exactly the same. Um, And although, yes, we approach news from a progressive point of view, we go where the facts take us always. Um, We're not an activist organisation. We're a news organisation. We're a factual, editorially independent news organisation. And no, there's absolutely no requirement that people have to sort of share some kind of political view to work at The Guardian. But I imagine the people who would uh, choose to or want to would probably share that kind of view that the world can be better than it is now. Mm. 
The Guardian changed its style guide earlier in the year to stop referring to climate change as climate change and to start referring to it as a climate crisis. What sort of led to that and what role do you think other media has in terms of shaping those kinds of issues? Well, that was a decision taken globally, but it's one that I completely agree with because it's factually correct. It is by scientific data, by scientific evidence, it is a crisis um, and global warming kind of downplays it. The world is heating. Mm. So we wanted our language to be accurate. And it's interesting on, if you look at the Guardian in the UK, it's approaching its 200th birthday. You've been in Australia for six years. Has the Guardian kind of fully found its place in the Australian media landscape yet? Or do you think there's a bit more to go? We're working on it. (laughs) Um, So I've been here from the very beginning. I think I was in fact the first... Um, journalist employed by The Guardian and I'd had discussions with them sort of long before it started and we were tiny, like it was a very tiny startup at the beginning and it makes me so incredibly happy that we've grown and found this place. I, I always thought that there was an absolute place for The Guardian in the Australian media landscape. That's why I left a very happy, cushy job at Fairfax to <laughs> to join a startup. Um and uh, and I think a lot of the people who, who are our natural readers have found us, like Dan said, about 5 million of them a month. But I think there's probably a much bigger audience of, of readers who, who don't know us yet, who haven't found us yet because we're six years in and, you know, we've still got um, a bit of expansion to do. So I think we're well on the way to achieving what I want us to achieve, which is to be an absolute major player with influence in the Australian media market. Do you think that it was a matter of taking what was really good and what really worked in the UK and knowing that that had a place to be successful here? Or was there a little bit of extra something needed to make sure that you had a local audience who found you? So I think the most important thing we did from the beginning was be very clear about our mission. We are and we are a Guardian Australia is an Australian media organisation staffed by Australians and writing Australian news for Australians. So some other people have come in and it's a, f- a fine model. It's just not our model to be like outsiders looking in, mm. kind of still having some sort of foreign um, or outsider kind of standing or placement in the market. That's not us. We have Australian journalists and we're part of the Australian market and we want to have an influence within Australian the Australian debate. And I think being really clear about that right from the beginning is what made it successful. It's probably also worth mentioning that, I mean, if you look at what has happened to the media industry broadly in Australia over the last six years since The Guardian has launched, I mean, it won't be a surprise to anyone listening that we've had massive consolidation. And so now, uh, obviously, Fairfax uh, is under the nine uh, staple. And uh, there's been, um, I think, a lot of other pure play digital startups which haven't had the success that The Guardian has had. Um, I think that it's also really important that we are successful in this market, more so than in the Australian market than anywhere else in the world, because the consolidation or the concentration, sorry, Mm. of the media industry Mm. in this country is so high. And that was part of the motivation for starting. But the other thing to say is that another reason why we can be so successful is that we have the Guardian UK back office. So Mm. all the technological development and all of that sort of stuff, I mean, that if you were starting from scratch and you had to do all of that yourself, it would make it very, very difficult. So we had all of that kind of back office stuff to support us and we just had to come up with the Australian news. And as Dan says, in the con- in, I mean, it's one of the most concentrated media markets in the world. I think the way readers have responded to us shows that they wanted a new independent voice. Mm. And it's interesting as well, um, talking about those big consolidated media companies, both News and Nine have started kind of focusing on the subscriber model, which The Guardian deliberately doesn't. It, as you mentioned earlier, it's the reader donation model. Is there a reason for that? And is it something you would consider down the line? Uh, yeah, there's a reason for it. We want our journalism to be available to everybody. Mm. And we find that a lot of our readers are motivated to pay for our journalism because they want to help it be available to people who can't afford to pay for it. And for lo- for as long as we can um, prosper with this revenue model, we'll keep it. Do you think in some ways the success of paywall models elsewhere has helped the reader donation model in that people are getting more used to, like you used to pay for newspapers, 
paying for journalism across the board, Maybe, and that means yeah. for The Guardian too. Yeah, I, I think that's broader than just a news issue. I think that mm. um, the willingness to, for people to pay for content, whether that's Netflix or news, uh, is certainly much higher than it was um, certainly five, ten years ago. And so, yeah, that certainly helped. Um, but I think the fact that we have a model which is um, where our journalism remains open and people can make voluntary contributions to it, it is a unique model. Mm. Um, but it does, uh, it is certainly helped by the fact that people are, are perhaps used to the idea of paying for news. It's interesting because a lot of the kind of narrative around media at the moment is very negative. We're seeing shrinking regional newsrooms. We're seeing the massive mergers and redundancies off the back of that. The Guardian seems to be doing really well. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, issues there in the way that the other big companies are suffering. What do you think that is that's kind of making you guys successful? I wish I could tell you. Yeah. <laughs> We'd found the magic solution. We bottled it. All good. <laughs> However, um, I mean, everybody's trying to figure their way through yeah. this, right? The business model broke and everybody's trying to figure it out. Um, I think that our reader revenue model, our mixed revenue model is um, – it, it, it is working and I have every confidence that it will work. But, you know, nobody really knows how this is all going to pan out apart from sort of, you know, academics with the security of university tenure who seem to sort of, you know, sometimes make prognostications. But anybody in the middle of it will say, we think we're on the right path, we hope we're on the right path and we're sort of in the middle of a big transformation. We are fortunate as well, right? I mean, the the news organisations that perhaps are suffering most uh, do have large legacy businesses yeah. with mm. legacy cost base. I mean, it's not cheap to print a newspaper. Mm. Um, so we have the advantage of being uh, primarily digital, not only digital, because we do have Guardian Weekly, which, which we relaunched towards the end of last year, but primarily a digital operation. And I also think it comes back to the kind of journalism that Lenore mentioned earlier, you know, when I started in this industry, the advertising yields were so high that um, news organisations were incentivized to go after clicks because you could make really meaningful dollars from advertising. The Guardian has never pursued that strategy. It has always um, pursued uh, civic journalism, serious journalism, investigations, reporting on the environment and the like. And I think because of that, we have been less dependent on perhaps the cheap social media referrals that a lot of the, our competitors have. And therefore, we haven't suffered as much when, for example, when Facebook changes its algorithm and traffic goes through the floor like it did for some of our competitors. We just haven't been in that position, fortunately. Mm. And talking about Facebook and social media, we obviously just saw the ACCC final report come out. Um in which the ACCC seemed to say Facebook and Google are very powerful and things are bad, but the, you know, the recommendations aren't necessarily aimed at fixing that. They're more aimed at stemming any possible future problems. What was your feeling when that report came out and going forward, what are you kind of hoping will happen in that area? Do you want to start on the commercial side? Well, there's there's so much to this yeah. report, it's difficult to know where to start. But um, look, I think broadly we are, we are very supportive of uh, the final report and we think that uh, the ACCC have done an excellent job of uh, both understanding the complexities of the digital economy, I guess, um, and also making recommendations which – they're ambitious, but I think they're appropriately ambitious. I mean, we, we have to be mindful of the fact that we are a country on the other side of the world from where uh, the platforms are based, mm -hmm. um, so that we probably have limited influence on what we can do. And I think that the recommendations that um, the ACCC put forward uh, were, were appropriate. I, I think there are, there are two significant issues here which um, probably are at the core of it, if I could, if I could perhaps start there. One of the main issues that the ACCC report has identified is that um, the collection of user data is now absolutely ubiquitous and happens everywhere, yet it is almost completely unregulated. The, mm. the currently, current privacy laws just haven't kept pace with that. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of the recommendations towards the end of the report would see us introducing um, a similar regulatory framework, framework to GDPR, which, which Europe brought in just over a year ago. And I think that is a good thing, giving consumers control over the collection of their user data. And we're, we're, we are already GDPR compliant, so it actually wouldn't change anything for us. No, exactly. Uh, we've gone through this process. Um, and then the other um, problem which uh, urgently needs solving is perhaps more serious is the application of this data because um, we still don't really know what the impact, for example, of what Cambridge Analytica was. Uh, we still don't know what the impact of misinformation that was spread um, during the Australian election was uh, towards the end of the campaign. Uh, and I think we need more transparency around uh, how targeting, audience targeting is applied um, to ensure that, um, without wanting to get too carried away, to ensure that democracy isn't hacked by this process. Which is sort of 
two separate bags of things really, right? It's like, well, where's the data coming from and how is it being gathered? And then how is it being used in an election campaign? So we did a big investigation on the death tax campaign in the last election. And really, you know, we, we don't know who was pushing out completely fake ads, which probably had to an extent a material impact on the election result. And to my mind, that's a concern. And you could say that, We've always had sort of misinformation in election campaigns, and that's true. But say there, you know, we used to be, you know, false flyers put in people's letterboxes, and you could you could catch the people putting them in the letterboxes. But now it's completely false, made up claims about a political party targeted at people, and you might not even ever see them. So the electoral regulations don't work. So I think the yeah, what the ACCC is proposing wouldn't solve that problem, but some transparency would give the electoral authorities more ability to impose their regulations properly in a digital age. So I guess what you're saying is that what the ACCC is doing is good, but that needs to be combined with tightening of political advertising mm-hmm. laws and all of the stuff that will then exactly. make sure no question. that solving what's happening online exactly. is solved. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I don't think we'll ever solve it, Yeah. Mm. but this will certainly be a step in the right direction. Um, I mean, there's the other issues uh, that were identified in the report primarily around competition, and obviously that exists as well. I mean, clearly Google and Facebook are taking um, uh, the vast majority of all digital advertising growth, and that makes it difficult for news organisations such as The Guardian to compete. And again, some of the recommendations that were in there to help um, stem that influence um, or that impact, uh, we broadly support, um, but it's it's not going to solve everything. Mm. Facebook's like 15 years old now. When you started six years ago, say, did you think that we'd be where we are now in terms of Facebook and Google? It's a difficult question. I don't know that I really thought about – I was so busy trying to, you know <laughs> – Make something really small at that point look really big. I don't know that I gave it a lot of thought. Um, no, when we started, we sort of just saw Facebook as an important way to reach out to readers. Um, mm. And it was only as we went along that we sort of ran into the the issues. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, just to add to that, I think um, I wasn't working at The Guardian um, six years ago. I've, I've only been with the company for about 18 months. But um, certainly when Facebook first launched uh, and Google first launched, we, we, we just, in the industry, we viewed them as an important source of traffic. The problem that we have now um, is probably bleedingly obvious, but nonetheless, I think Google reaches 19 million Australians a month, Facebook 17 million, and YouTube and Instagram aren't, aren't far behind. Um you simply have to engage with the platforms. Mm. Pretending that they don't exist or complaining about their dominance is kind of futile. Right. You, you simply have to um, engage with them in order to um, sustain your audience and, and use their technology often for advertising in the case of Google. Um, so really all we're after is just um, a, a bit more of a levelling of the playing field and more transparency around how they operate um, mm. to give uh, organisations such as The Guardian and other news masters uh, a better chance of comp- uh, competing. You mentioned before, Dan, that the revenue model, the way it is, means that you're not relying on Facebook algorithms maybe the way that other publications are and that traffic taking a hit through those platforms is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. What then, what analytics are you using to sort of decide what audiences are engaging with, what people care about, what to do more of? So we have an internal um, analytics tool, which is what we primarily uh, look at, uh, and then we have we use Google Analytics as well. Yeah, I mean, I think though to, to get to, um, I think what you were you were um, getting to with your question, um, for us, uh, it's not just about reach for reach's sake. Uh, we want to have as direct a relationship with our uh, readers and with our audience as we possibly can, and because of that, uh, because that's largely been successful for the Guardian the engagement that we are able to generate from our readers is exceptional. I mean, it's certainly higher than any other publisher that I've ever seen in this market. We've got various ways of measuring it which are really useful, so not just reading time on the article as opposed to how long the article would take to read, but also a measure of how much that reading time compares with the reading times we've achieved on similar types of articles before. Mm. So we And we highlight that every morning at um, conference. It's as important a measure of how we did yesterday, the day before, um, as 
the readership numbers. Mm. And sorry to bring it back to the commercial side of things, but why that is important is that um, for the higher engagement that we can achieve with the metrics that Lenore mentioned, the more likely it is that readers are going to support us. But also increasingly, advertisers care more and more about this. It's It wasn't that long ago that I think advertisers were perhaps going after reach first and engagement environment was sort of a secondary concern. Look, to a certain extent, that's still the case, but it's less it's less prominent now. And I think advertisers are becoming much more aware of wanting to reach an audience, but an audience that is genuinely engaged because obviously the advertising is more effective then. Mm. I think we're probably pushing close to the end there, but there were a couple of topics I just wanted to get your thoughts on. We've just seen Facebook partner with a couple of big media companies for some exclusive content. Is that an area the Guardian would consider going into in the future? So we never say never, but anybody we partner with has to be on the with the proviso of complete and total editorial independence. So anything we considered, anything Dan brings to me, that's the that's the guidelines. And just lastly, one of the other main conversations that's happening in the media space at the moment is the press freedom stuff. Um, we're obviously kind of, you know, going a bit back and forth on that. And Australia is getting a pretty bad rap on a global scale for having a very conservative view on that sort of thing. What is your opinion on that and where are you hoping that conversation is going to lead us? Um, well, we're part of the Right to Know Coalition and I think that the without going into them in detail, the sorts of propositions that um, have been put by the combined media companies really deserve serious consideration. You're right, globally, I mean, our our colleagues in the US and the UK are kind of astounded mm. at what's going on here. It's amazing. And my personal view is listening to the testimony at the committee hearings last week, I don't think that our public servants um, that who are administering this series of laws that have brought us to this situation really properly understand the importance of media freedom. I, I just don't think they get it. Mm. Yeah, it's a concerning space <laughs> but on that note we're going to wrap it up thank you so much for coming in dan and lenore you're thank very you for welcome and if you enjoyed that chat with dan and lenore dan is speaking at mumbrella's published conference in sydney on the 19th of september so you can hear more from him there we also have a leader's hot seat session Four leaders with 10 minutes each where nothing is off limits. There you'll hear from Junkie Media's Neil Ackland, Swartz Media's Rebecca Costello, News Corp and the Australian's Nicholas Gray and Nine's Chris Jans. So for more information or to purchase tickets, please head to mumbrella.com.au slash publish. For now though, team, let's get back to the Health Marketing Summit. Bye. Bye.